Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. The big idea this morning is we're going to learn of the significance of our sacrament, the baptism, by considering the significance of Abram's sacrament, circumcision, and the the ways in which they connect. Genesis 17. It's the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings, peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. It's good to be back with you after a week of study in, in North Carolina and then a week of vacation with my family in South Carolina. On our return trip from South Carolina to Michigan, we were kind of, our plans kept changing for various reasons, and we ended up in Kentucky. That was not the plan, is it ever? Um, and we were spending the night in a town called Corbin, Kentucky. We did not know the area. There was no reason we were there. It's just that that was the exit on the highway right at the time when we needed to get to bed. But as we took that exit for the hotel, there was an interesting sign. Sanders Cafe and Museum, the birthplace of KFC, this way. Corbin, Kentucky, this random tiny town. And we looked at that sign. We thought, how neat is that? <laughs> That's kind of cool. Uh, Did we turn for it? No, we did not. Now, why not? Well, because the sign was helpful and it told us what we would get. We had no interest in going to a museum about Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was nice to know it was there, and it was even cool to think that we could say at some point, we've been in the home place, the birthplace of KFC, but we didn't need anything beyond that. It was not worth our time. And I wonder sometimes if we think of baptism in a similar way. Baptism is a sign. That's what uh, theologians have been saying for hundreds and hundreds of years. And is it a sign that we see and we smile and we think, well, that's neat, but it doesn't do much for us beyond that. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And if that's so, why would that be the case? Well, it would be the case because we have mistaken baptism as a sign that points us to something that we don't think is really worth our time. Like that sign in Corbin, Kentucky. That's neat, but I don't need to go to where it's pointing. We're not drawn to follow it. I want to ask you today, does your baptism, if you are baptized, does it mean something to you? Does it mean something to you? If it does, it's because you understand what it's pointing to. You understand that it is a signpost, and you cherish it for this reason. It is a signpost that leads you to God himself and to everything that he has promised to do for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ, namely in the gospel. And that's why you cherish your baptism, because of where it leads, where it takes you. It takes you to Jesus, and friends, Jesus is never a waste of your time. In our chapter, God comes to Abraham yet again to remind him that his words never fail, right? God had promised the covenant of grace. He had pronounced it to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. Then Abraham begins to doubt, so God says, okay, well, let me kind of up the ante, as it were, and now I'm going to add to that promise an oath. I'm going to swear to it, Genesis 15. We saw that two weeks ago. But to Abraham, he continues to doubt. God does not come 
to condemn him in Genesis 17. Rather, he says, okay, let me do something else. I want to add to this promise, this promise that I've underscored with an oath that I've sworn to. I'm going to add to it a sign, something you can see, Abraham, something that will assure you, something that will remind you. We could call it a sacrament. The point of a sacrament is to illustrate the content of a covenant, what it's all about. And the illustration that God gives this grand covenant of grace is the ritual known as circumcision. So look at verse 11. Very explicitly it's stated there. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign. There's that word, sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, It's such a sign of the reality of what the covenant's about that uh, in the preceding verse, God essentially equates the sign with the thing signified. He can say without qualification there in verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, that every male be circumcised. This is the covenant. Circumcision is the covenant. That means, friends, if we want to get the covenant of grace... We need to understand this sign that's been attached to it. We need to get circumcision. It's teaching us all about God's gracious plan of salvation. And it lays the foundation for our understanding of our sacrament, baptism, which in the new covenant has replaced circumcision. So I want to consider with you four things that circumcision and baptism alike illustrate for us about the covenant of grace. What is it teaching us about God's promises? What can we cling to about God? We want to learn this so that when we see the sign, we want the thing that it's pointing to. That's the point today. We, we want to understand what it's illustrating, what it's telling us about the covenant, and what makes that covenant so gracious. Number one, circumcision teaches us that the covenant of grace is at bottom, it is answering a spiritual problem. Number one, that the covenant is answering a spiritual problem. And that might seem kind of counterintuitive or paradoxical because, let's face it, circumcision is a very physical thing. But it's a physical act that had a primarily hygienic purpose. And God co-ops that into the covenant as a way of symbolizing that our problem is one of cleanliness too. Just as there was something... Uh, on the male body that can be diseased and therefore need to be cut off to keep them clean, there is something in all of us that is diseased and needs to be excised from us, removed from us. And that is in our hearts. That's our soul. It's our spirit. So various times in the Bible, the people of God are reminded that circumcision really is about a spiritual reality. Consider Deuteronomy 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul so that you will live. That's what the covenant of grace was promising to do, to fix our hearts. Paul writes later in Romans 2, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Friends, we have a terrible infection And it is called sin. And unless God, the great spirit surgeon, deals with it, we can never be with him again. It is sin that alienates us from God. The covenant of grace is the answer to that alienation. God promising his spirit to make us right. And that's pictured, that's illustrated in circumcision. This act that would cleanse people. 
And the new covenant counterpart, namely uh, baptism, illustrates the same thing, perhaps in in an even more easily understood way. What do we use water for? We use water to, to clean things. When it comes to our soul, God doesn't send us to the dry cleaners. We get wet. And so we read Titus 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured, water imagery again, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior. This is why baptism is such a fitting sign or symbol. Uh, As the water washes over us, we in a very real sense see what God is doing inside of us by his Spirit. He cleanses us. That's his promise in the covenant of grace, making us people who are fit, who are clean, who are holy to dwell with God. And that's a work only he can do. When you, when you sense that you're a sinner and you're defiled and something needs to change, the first thing then you need to recognize is you are not the one to change it. You cannot. But God can and God will by his spirit. In fact, there may be another even more subtle hint of that. In Genesis 17, through another significant event that takes place, what does God do to to Abram here in chapter 17? He changes his name, doesn't he? Do you see that in verse 5? Your name shall be no longer Abram, but Abraham. He was Abram, which meant honored father. You can imagine a name that probably brought him a great deal of shame as he was still childless. And now God says, you're no longer going to be known as honored father, but he changes it from Abram to Abraham, which means now father of many, father of multitudes. It's even more embarrassing probably to Abraham, who still has no children. But how does he change the name? How do we get from Abram to Abraham? He adds just a breath. Just a breath. This ha sound, Abraham. James Boyce points it out when he says, When God called Abram Abraham, what he was really doing was adding his mighty breath or his spirit to Abram's reality. Because nothing short of God's spirit is promised and pictured in the covenant of grace. His spirit must come to us. His spirit must redefine us. His spirit must cleanse and claim us. Circumcision, baptism teach us that. Second, circumcision teaches us that the covenant of grace, not only is it answering a spiritual problem, but it is non-ethnic. Non-ethnic. It is open to everyone. We see that in our text, verses 12 through 13. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. O. Palmer Robertson writes in his book, From the day of its original institution as a covenant sign, circumcision was open to Gentiles. It was not intended to be a racial badge, but more broadly a covenant sign. And that covenant is for everyone. Now, that's quickly forgotten. Israel often will cling to their circumcision as a way of saying, we're better than the other nations. But that's wrong. The covenant was always open to the heathen nations, to those who would come in faith and repentance to the living God. After all, according to Genesis 12:3, the covenant was for all the families of the earth. 
And consider that the people who receive circumcision in Genesis 17, they're not even Israelites. Israel doesn't exist yet. That won't be until Jacob and his 12 sons is there a nation known as Israel. God gives circumcision before there's a nation to say it's not about a nation. And that means that the very first people who are circumcised are not Israelites. Who are they? Well, verse 23, Abraham took those born in his house. Where is he from? He's from Ur of the Chaldees. Or people bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised their flesh. The first people group that received this sign are a bunch of Chaldeans. And so an important principle about the covenant of grace is taught here. And that is when salvation is of grace, it's for everyone. And that means it can be for you. Of course, baptism continues that global gospel symbolism. The first new covenant baptisms are recorded in Pentecost. And Peter preaches this reality of the covenant of grace. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off. That's a term for Gentiles. Those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's not about pedigree. It's not about lineage. It's not about your heritage. Rather, Peter roots the promise in God's gracious initiation, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The covenant is non-ethnic. We could add to that what Paul writes in Galatians 3, that once you've been baptized, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one. A third thing that circumcision illustrates for us in baptism, along with it, as we'll see here in a second, is that the covenant of grace is fulfilled through family. The covenant of grace is fulfilled in families. The very first pronouncement in Genesis 3.15 hones in on this word offspring. Seed. The seed of the woman. Uh, That's key to God's plan of redemption. And, you know, just to be blunt, then a sign that is done to the male reproductive organ is a powerful reminder that they are putting their hope in the the seed that will one day come. the, the, The offspring that will one day come through this family lineage. But it's not simply that the promise would be fulfilled through the family, but that the promise is for families. That it's for families. In Genesis 17, the language of offspring comes up again, but it comes up in this way. Verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. But then he goes on to say, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So that I could be a God to you, Abraham, but also be a God to your offspring after you. And that's why Abraham's children, at this point just child Ishmael that he has through Hagar... They receive uh, the covenant sign too, even before they have the opportunity to put their faith in the covenant. Abraham had that opportunity. We read of it in Genesis 15, right? He believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, Ishmael didn't have that opportunity. The the people in, in Abraham's house that he circumcises, they don't have that opportunity. But because they belong to his family, they receive the sign. Why? Why should they receive the sign? Before faith. And this is really key, friends. The reason they can receive the sign 
before they would even profess faith is because the sign, where is it meant to point? To us? Into our belief? And and, uh, what good Christians we are? Look at me, I have faith in Jesus. No, the sign points to God and to what He does and to what He's promising to do. And so, that's why the covenant of grace can be uh, the sign of the covenant of grace. Uh, We don't need faith before it can be applied to someone because it's not about someone's faith, but it's about God's promises. It helps us to see it's all about grace. The, The covenant of grace is God's promise that he is for us. There's this posture of God where he's ready for us. He's wanting us. He's not against us. God has opened up his arms wide and he says that we are welcome to him before we have made any indication that we even want him. And praise God for that. Praise God that he does not wait for us to say yes to him before he says yes to us. Because if it depended upon our initiation, we would never come. We would never come. And so that's why the entire household is circumcised here. Because through the gracious work of the covenant, God is for this family. He's for them, not against them. Now, of course, this is where things get interesting. As we have seen so far how the essence of circumcision is recapitulated in baptism. Baptism signifies that it's spiritual. Baptism signifies that it's global. What about this family principle? Is that also represented and illustrated in baptism? Or in other words, the question is this. Is baptism just for those who profess faith? Or is it for them and their families? And the Reformed and Presbyterian distinctive over against other evangelicals is the latter. We claim that for at least four reasons. And the reason I wanted to spend some time is because I've been getting a lot of questions about this lately. So here we are. Um, some of us this is we're familiar with. Some of us we believe it, but we don't know why we believe it. And there's some of us here who don't understand it at all and don't believe it. Well, this is at least I could distill to at least four reasons why we believe that baptism continues the pattern that circumcision began. Namely, that it belongs to the family of the covenant, not just those who profess faith. I'll be brief with these. First, the first reason is the continuity of the covenant. Uh, Our Baptist brothers and sisters would want to claim that something changes at the dawn of the New Testament. Before God worked with a nation, now he works with individuals. Something has changed. We call it the New Covenant for a reason, after all, they would say. But let's be clear. The New Covenant derives its name in comparison to the Old Covenant, which is referring to the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its ceremonial rituals, dietary restrictions, um, theocratic government, and so on. But as we've seen, circumcision comes before all that. Circumcision is before Moses. comes with Abraham. It belongs to the covenant of grace as a whole, God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. And that plan has not changed and will not change from that moment till the end of time. And so if when God revealed the covenant of grace to Abraham as a family matter, and that even infants eight days old should receive the sign of the covenant, then we would say the same is true today. That leads to a second point, which is the silence of the New Testament. We have the 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 continuity of the covenant, now the silence of the New Testament. Those who hold to believer baptism, they would say that in the New Testament, it never says, there's no verse, thou shalt baptize thine infants. 
It's true. We could say, well, there's no verse that says you should not baptize your infants. But that doesn't put us on kind of the same, uh, put us in a stalemate. Because the silence of the New Testament actually favors this Presbyterian Reformed paedo-baptist position. Why? Again, because of the continuity of the covenant. The inclusion of children into the covenant is what would have been assumed. It was the norm for 2,000 years in Jewish religion. And so when Peter says in Pentecost, the promise is for you and your children, the Jews there would have been nodding along. Amen. Preach it, brother. We know this. It's always been for our children. When we read of household baptisms in the New Testament, it's often asserted, well, we could assume maybe children are there, but we don't know for sure. And that's, that's true. But we do know for certain that there were uh, children in Abraham's household here in Genesis 17. We know that there were children in the households on Passover when the blood was put over the doorpost. Children who received God's covenant love. We know that children walked through the dry land between the uh, Red Sea waters, which Paul calls a type of baptism. Children belong to the covenant, and so they received the sign of the covenant. And so for them to suddenly be kicked out would make no sense. This is what J.V. Fesco writes. He says, For there to have been a change in this covenantal practice without so much as a syllable of explanation would not have gone over well with first century Jews. There would have been an outcry. But the absence of such an outcry, as well as the absence of a counter-indicative commands, points in the direction that the inclusion of male infants continued as it had since Abraham. So the silence of the New Testament favors this position. Number three, there's the implication of the apostles. We've considered Peter's sermon at Pentecost, but let me point out to you one other place. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. This is easy to remember. If you want to know, you know, where do we get this position? Two verses that are easy to remember. Ephesians 1.1, Ephesians 6.1. And when you go to Ephesians 1.1, Paul writes there, and he, he states from the very beginning who he's addressing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Flip over to six one. This would only be a few paragraphs later. Same letter or paragraphs later in the same letter, he writes, "Children, obey your parents." He's writing to saints, and Paul has no qualms, no trouble to say that children belong to the saints at Ephesus. How is that? Well, does saint mean believer? No, no, not not in this instance. Saint, in this sense, means a set-apart community. And by God's grace, he sets aside not just those who have professed, but those who are brought up in the household of faith. And number four, finally, the continuity of the covenant, the silence of the New Testament, the implication of the apostles. Fourth and finally, the exhortation of Jesus himself. Mark ten fourteen. let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is not sentimental on Jesus' part. This is not, oh, look how good Jesus is with babies. That's not what this is about. This is profound, deep covenant theology. 
Jesus is making a statement about God's covenant community, which he calls the kingdom of God. And he says very much in keeping with what we found in Genesis 17, that God has opened up that kingdom, that community, even to children. Circumcision, therefore, and baptism alike are a picture to us of the open arms of Jesus there in Mark chapter 10, when he says, bring me babies, because I am for the families of faith. Now that all being said, this is an important caveat. Belonging to the covenant community does not guarantee salvation. Children who have received that sign and boys and girls who have been baptized and are sitting here today, you listen to me. Your baptism does not get you into heaven. It got you into the church, praise God. But you need to have that personal interchange with Jesus. You need to have that moment where you fall on your knees and you recognize, I'm a sinner and I deserve hell, but you are so gracious, Lord Jesus. Will you save me? We all still need to have that personal act of faith and trust in God alone. And that itself is even embedded in circumcision, in the sign. Look, uh, we're back to Genesis 17 and we're closing with this. We see that circumcision taught in a very sober way that the alternative to the covenant was Curse. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. If you don't belong to the covenant community, in God's eyes, you are cut off from the covenant community. And cut off is the language of curse in the Bible. Psalm uh, 101 says it's what God will do to evildoers. But It's also a reminder to us who have received the sign. In ancient Israel, if you had been circumcised, then you wore the marks in your body of what God is willing to do if you denied him. It's as though God is saying, take this gracious, momentarily painful cutting now so that you don't have to receive being cut off from me eternally. So you do not have to be cut off from my presence forever. And friends, this is what happened at the cross for us. This is what Jesus did for us. He was cut off from the presence of God, cast off as though he was a curse. He bore the curse of sin in our place. And that's what Colossians 2 tells us, which we read earlier in our service. Our hope, our ultimate hope is that we have been made clean, pure, holy, and right with God because Christ was made the opposite. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And fascinatingly, Paul goes on in the very same breath. There's not even a period. The very same breath, he goes on to say that that heart work that's been done for us because of Christ on the cross crucified is symbolized now in baptism. It says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raises him from the dead. Here's the New Testament's clearest indication that baptism has replaced circumcision. Everything that circumcision stood for and meant now is to be fulfilled and and completed in baptism. It is our baptism that assures us of our union to Christ. It's my baptism that assures me that the curse that I deserve became his. And his resurrection has become mine. Do I deserve it? 
Do you deserve it? This is why we call it grace. No, of course we don't deserve it, but we get it anyway. And Colossians 2 also explains why why there's been this change from baptism to circumcision. I wonder if you caught it. And it's packed into this definitive phrase when he says, Paul writes, the circumcision of Christ. We've put off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Friends, the idea is this. Now that Christ has bled for me, I never need to bleed again. We might think that that circumcision in a more powerful way illustrated the, the, the possibility of being cursed if we reject God. But I think baptism represents it in a more beautiful way because it shows that because Christ has been cursed for us, now what do I receive? Harmless water. The, the, the knife of God's judgment has been laid aside. Isaac Watts in a hymn says, Water seals the blessing now that once was sealed with blood. God will never require my blood to atone for my sin. Even symbolically, he won't require it. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So friends, do you see your Christ today? In baptism, do you see your Christ? Look beyond the water. It's a sign. And in a moment, we're going to say, look beyond the bread and the wine. Look to the Christ that these signs point to. Do you see him? Do you see him hanging there, crucified, killed, and cursed to make you clean? To cure you? To bring you into covenant with God where God says, I will be your God forever. Martin Luther had tremendous struggles in the Christian life. And the moments when he felt at his lowest, he did something kind of interesting, perhaps even a little odd to us. When he felt the, the, the breath of, uh, of the dragon seeking to devour him. When he felt the dull weight of the sin and guilt in his heart pulling him down. Or when, when he felt the tug uh, of the attractions of the world trying to pull him away from the loveliness of Christ, you know what he would do? He would take out a piece of chalk on his desk and he would write in large, all caps, Latin words, Baptizatus sum. Baptizatus sum. I am baptized. Why? Why would he do that when he was doubting, when he was discouraged? Why was this a much-needed reminder to him when he was down? Would that reminder mean anything to you? I want you to know today that it meant something to Luther because for Luther, Christ meant everything. And he saw his baptism as a sign that pointed him to Jesus himself and all that he was willing to do for Martin Luther in the covenant of grace. And it's what God is willing to do for you if you repent, if you believe, if you come to him in true faith. He's for you. He is not against you. So come to him. Let's pray. We do thank you, O oh God, for...
the love of Christ seen in the covenant culminating at the cross that he would bear our curse and our shame and endure excruciating pain and torment becoming sin for us so that we could be forgiven so that we could be clean so that we could belong and we're prone to forget that to doubt it and yet you're so gracious that you give us signs symbols to remind us what it's all about what you've done would we with luther remember that we're baptized would we remember what you have promised to do for us and even in a moment as we come to the table would we see a christ crucified for us and rejoice. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh,